everyone, just a quick note before we begin. Our 100th episode is just around the corner, and we would love to hear from all of you. Please send us a short audio recording of one to two minutes telling us things that you appreciated about the previous 100 episodes, what you'd like to see in the next 100 episodes. Ask us a question of any kind. We'd love to answer it. But most importantly, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. All right. And here's the episode. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 98. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're reviewing the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, published by Christianity Today, with Dr. Michael Bird, who is academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College, Melbourne, and Amy Bird, who is the author of Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, published by Zondervan. You can find Amy at her website at amybird.com, and you can find the two of them in a podcast that they do together called Birds of a Feather. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Brandon Hurlbert, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. And joining us for the first time is our newest team member, Stephanie Kate Judd. Welcome to the team, Stephanie. Thanks so much, John. It's such a pleasure to be part of a podcast that has been such a help to me as a listener um, over a really long period of time, particularly the series on gender was so helpful to me and my communities. I'm not a theologian, but I am a lawyer and I have an active interest in understanding how, how do we live well in the world? How do we think well about God and his people? And so this podcast has been such a resource for me. So it's a real honor um, to be a part of um, such a great team. So thanks for having me on. And of course, listeners may recognize her voice because she was one of our guests in an earlier episode on apologetics, teaching and training. And we're very excited to have Steph on the team now. So in this episode, we're reflecting on our experiences, listening to the podcast about Mars Hill, this mega church in Seattle, pastored by Mark Driscoll for several years, which fell apart in 2014. And there's a lot of stuff that the podcast digs into. And in this episode, all we can really do is just kind of scratch the surface. But what were some of the thoughts that you all had about this conversation that we had with Mike and Amy? At the outset, we want to acknowledge that among us, Brandon was the only one who was really involved at Mars Hill. And so most of us speak about the podcast and about the stuff we hear about on the podcast as outsiders. Um, and we realize that that limits our perspective in a number of ways. So we don't on, on this episode, we don't speak as experts. We don't speak as necessarily congregants other than uh, than Brandon. And yet at the same time, we thought it was worth reflecting on the podcast uh, and the story of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll in various ways. Uh, if you do want to hear more direct uh, accounts and more uh, well-researched accounts, I would uh, recommend Jessica Johnson's book, Biblical Porn, which we discussed on the podcast. Yeah, so Amy has just uh, um, reminded us, this is post-podcast, that uh, we didn't discuss uh, Driscoll's salary, uh, which was apparently, according to the podcast, $650,000 a year. 
Now, if I remember correctly, um, when I was listening to Mars Hill sermons, what how he said he calculated or the a board calculated the salary. And somebody, please, if someone knows more about this, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember this vividly in a sermon, was that they took the average of what every pastor in America made, and then he gets paid the average of that. Now, I don't know how they calculated that or if they included people like Joel Osteen <laughs> like, or um, Kenneth Copeland <laughs> in that in that average <laughs> but we should have, we should have discussed that but we didn't but uh amy reminded us that we should probably acknowledge it well at the very least i think it should be a red a red flag if, if you're in an environment where someone not only has an accrual of an immense amount of power but also getting a lot of cash that's got to be red flag um in the context of a lack of accountability and that's all the while where he's like uh i didn't get any profit from my book sales like yeah, but you're still getting paid like more than half a million dollars a year. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is one of the things that comes up time and time again is that it, uh, really the, the discrepancy in pay really highlights uh, some of the abuse issues that are at hand. Um, I was listening to an old friend of mine, Ryan Williams, who went over to do an unpaid internship at Mars Hill in uh, 2011. Uh, we were studying at seminary together at the time. But um, he went over and he had a, a finite amount of Australian dollars uh, that he was living on. And I think he was tithing like 20 bucks a week to the church or something like that. And he found out when, when the results of stuff happened that that 20 bucks a week that he was tithing to the church and eating into his living allowance uh, was being used to prop up Mark Driscoll's uh, books. And, and he was also complaining that he wasn't ma- making any money from them, where evidently he was making 650 grand like in, in, a, in take home. Um, and I think that really highlights both the, the, that discrepancy and the abuse there, but it, but it, it bring, brings it back to, to uh, what we're talking about in the entirety of this podcast. And that challenge uh, where this isn't just a, a Mars Hill thing necessarily. This is, this is something which happens more broadly across the spectrum, and it's just better hidden in other areas. Uh, so I was reading a, reading a book review the other day, uh, which uh, you know someone objected to the fact that pastors should be more like Fred Rogers than Bill Hybels. And you know, you, if we're going to be reviewing books and saying that people should be more like people who are abusers, then there's something seriously wrong with the church. And, and that's one of the things I appreciate about this conversation is that we, we have in this conversation, we don't just stick to Mars Hill and as if everything evil in the world, everything evil in the church happened at Mars Hill and therefore we can silo it off and ignore uh, the ills of the church and the problems in the church elsewhere. Um, but rather, I think Amy and Mike, um, I mean, coming from their, their different traditions and I mean, Mike and I are in the same uh, diocese here in Melbourne, where it's a, a broader uh, conversation, which is well aware of the of the challenges facing the church today. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation because I thought it 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 touched on a lot of the big themes that were brought up in the Rising Hall of Mars Hill. Um, the big the big ones for me that I'm most interested in were, you know, the governance question. Like, are there are there are there better governance structures than others that lend itself towards better accountability, which foster healthier cultures, um, the question of masculinity and gender, um, that, that came out in a big way, particularly whether there are 
particular types of um, attitudes towards women that lend itself towards attitudes towards power and how do we make sense of that. Also thought it was it was good to kind of talk about um, the whole competence versus um, character question uh, and how, you know, particularly like celebrity culture can kind of shape, distort our plausibility structures such that we are willfully blind to things that we shouldn't have been. And so like this conversation that we've just had with Mark and Amy, it doesn't land anywhere. It's just more of an exploration of, wow, this is this is a big thing. And I think for us, I know that the posture of each of us has been one of humility. Like I think, um, you know, what, what can we learn from this and, and what, what repentance needs to be, you know, observed. I think that that was something that we spoke about you know, that that this kind of stuff can happen in any context. It just takes on a different texture. Um, you know, it's not just the non-denominational um, churches with a rogue leader. It also happens in a way that, you know, Amy shared about really helpfully, I think, about the way that process, bureaucracy can be weaponized. Um, and so that's why I appreciated what, what Mike said about how the, the big takeaway isn't that there are one structure, that, that, that one structure is better than others, but that it's about cultivating character in our leaders uh, and prioritizing that and also culture um, but <laughs> that's a that's a fairly big take home and it doesn't immediately strike me as one that's easy to implement but at least a helpful starting point in a conversation going forward yeah i really enjoyed this uh this conversation with mike and amy um i mean i really enjoyed this whole podcast um the rise and fall of mars hill i think from listening to the podcast and from even just having this conversation, just realize that there's is just so much that we could talk about. Um, I feel like we, we we talked a lot about Mars Hill, but we didn't actually talk a whole lot about the podcast uh, in this episode. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think there's just so much to talk about. And even in my own experience, that you know, I went to Mars Hill. I was there for two or three years uh, towards the end, and one of the you know the the bigger takeaways from the the series was that there's just so much to talk about this is just such a a a deeply uh sad and traumatic story uh because so many people have been hurt uh by mars hill and by mark driscoll and by the culture that has enabled that you know one of the things you know that i one of the things i didn't actually get to say in the in the podcast that i i did want to say so i'll just plug it here uh at the at the beginning is you know one thing that the podcast tried to do i don't think quite captured it was to show how that toxic culture you know that began you know at the, the fountainhead of driscoll and kind of trickled down through its leaders um the the podcast really didn't I think quite capture how that affected the common person in the day-to-day life within community groups within on Sunday mornings after church on Sundays you know things that if you had been at Mars Hill you would have experienced and seen and I think those kind of conversations uh that are really particular to everyone's stories those kind of things are at least for for me as someone who attended Mars Hill, those were cons- those kind of conversations and my own personal experiences were constantly in the back of my mind as I listened uh, to this podcast series, which I, I did on the whole enjoy. I thought it was really helpful, but I think in the end there, were, there was something missing. And I don't know if I want to fault the podcast or even our own episode 
for not being able to address it. Just because I think it just takes a whole lot of time to process trauma, to process your own experience. Um, and uh, I'm just really thankful that I was able to have this, this experience uh, to talk about it with uh, friends in a safe space. And uh, now it's been recorded and now you can listen to it. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I am thankful I've been able to process that uh, through this in a live setting. It's fun. All right. And here's our conversation with Amy Bird and Mike Bird. Mike and Amy, it's wonderful to have you both back on the pod. Yeah, happy to be a returner. It's great to be among some great friends and uh, people who run a terrific podcast. Yeah. Well, cheers. So how about we begin this discussion about the rise and fall of Mars Hill uh, podcast with everyone's thoughts on the main takeaway that they had after listening to the series. I would say that, um, you know, there were I had some ups and downs in listening to this. Um, times where I was like, oh, thank you for saying this, you know, thank you for interviewing these people even. Um, and then there are other times where I felt like things weren't being named completely for what they were. Um, but, you know, with this last episode, there was, there was a lot more, um, you know, hearing about the trauma and the fault lines um, that all this has caused. And I was really thankful for that, even as hard as it is to listen to. But one thing I feel like a takeaway from this is, is, you know, taking a step back, it's been kind of years since this has all went down. And so now being able to look at the history of it, how it's affected people, how it's affected even the children of these people who are now adults. Um, and yet still some of the power structures um, that have fueled and enabled this kind of train wreck in a church um, you know, at the end, it's just kind of like, oh, we wished we wanted to interview Tim Keller and John Piper and uh, Matt Chandler, but they declined. You know, is, are we just going to keep it there? And that's it. Because, I mean, you look at the list, uh, just going through TGC of abusive pastors, and you've got like Tulian Chavidjian and James McDonald, Doug Wilson, CJ Mahaney, Joshua Harris, Darren Patrick. When are we going to talk about the complicity in these power structures and these parachurch organizations at work behind the scenes who, you know, are benefiting until they're not and and they're feeding this and they're complicit. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like, you know, we were getting to the end of this podcast and there was talk about repentance and talk about naming the wolf and um and yet, even as they're talking about this conspiracy of politeness, here we are still, um, you know, nothing to see here. We can trust in these big organizations that are platforming these people. We're still not talking about that. I think, yeah, one of, one of the things that's really critical there is that even, even if the, the oversight capability or um, in, in, in the accountability for these pastors lies, the responsibility lies with the local church. Or their local right. board of elders, the legit the legitimacy that being part of an organization like TGC or Acts 29 actually means that there is a, a, a degree of diverse accountability 
for people like Driscoll, like Tullian, I can't say his surname, <laughs> um, you know, for, for these abusers where people will overlook uh, what is happening at this local level because they are part of this large organisation and therefore this much greater reach feels like, oh, they're one of us. They're, they're mm-hmm. one of this this group that we we belong to and therefore um, they're unassailable or unquestionable. Yeah, and, and you know, they write these vague articles then like, you know, how to respond when church leaders fall. <laughs> you know, things like, you know, they'll even write articles about abuse, but um, there isn't this naming. There isn't this, you know, even like, wow, we really got this wrong. This person was on our board. Like we've led people who trust us under their teaching. That's ex- exactly. And there hasn't been a lot of contrition or public statements by a lot of these organizations who gave him a platform and when they know what he was like and it, it and it t- took really extreme measures for people to back away and walk away. I mean, I've really enjoyed the uh, the episodes. I think it's been produced uh, greatly by Christianity Today and, and Mike Aubrey. It's, it's a wonderful thing. I think it should be mandatory reading for anyone who's going into ministry. Um, mm. it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great morality. I don't think it's church failure porn. I think it's a great morality tale. And, I mean, for me, the takeaways are, if I can say flippantly, um, first of all, uh, narcissists get things done. That's the, that's the flipping <laughs> takeaway. Uh, if you want something done and you don't care about uh, the damage, narcissists do get, do get results. Uh, but the, the second for me, the big takeaway is providing men with an avenue of purpose to find purpose in their life, to give them power. And if you can add to that, basically defining marriage as some kind of, you know, one woman harem. Um, where you will have sex on tap for life. And the, uh, the amount of interest that Driscoll showed in um, marriage and sex, I mean, that, that, that this was a big part of it. I mean, this, you know, you, you, you would think it, it would be kind of like, you know, um, an incel's paradise, because I'm definitely going to find me a woman who will satisfy all my needs because she has to. And the way that they also aligned this kind of, I mean, the, the weird thing for me is you could see that Driscoll wanted people to be deeper committed, not a superficial commitment. He wanted them to be deeper committed. Now, that's, you could say Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship, you know, not, not a nominal Christianity, a, a true commitment. He was doing that when it came to family and marriage and 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 being part of a church, but then he added into it loyalty to himself and the institution. And that I think was the real creepy element. That was the creepy thing. So that, that, that was my, my, my sort of t- main takeaways, you know, narcissists get things done. Uh, it was, it was very attractive to men who want um, power, purpose and sexual pleasure. And, you know, the, the call to deep discipleship was, was married with a real cult-like loyalty to the institution and to the man. I mean, and, and, it, and it all ended very, very badly. Those are my takeaways. Mike, I just want to follow up on, on the, the teaching to men piece because something that a lot of my girlfriends have been, you know, commiserating with one another about has been just how unbelievable a lot of, like, let's be clear, a lot of these episodes were hard to listen to for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. But the question, the follow-up question for me is, well, a, is it just that his teaching was appealing to this sense for power and the weird, distorted, abusive 
relationship with women or was there anything was there anything to what he was teaching um, which explains why a lot of young men gravitated towards what he was teaching is there anything was there any nub in that um, that was effective or good or was it do you just write it all off and that's for both Amy and Mike I mean you can say there's some good stuff when he talks about men being faithful when he rallies against pornography, that's fine. But the, the difference is, and this is, I think, something my wife said to me, the, the reason he's against pornography is because the, the wife's job is to provide the porn. That, that's, that's based, so you could argue it is a very pornographic message, but mm-hmm. the, the porn is now just limited to, to the wife's role is to be a pornographic provider. And so, again, it, it's it's... It's one of those things where you've got something good that is then uh, twisted in such a way, like telling men to be good husbands, good fathers, good parents. I mean, that's all good stuff. But then it's the, it's, it's this sort of sordid, extreme uh, way of doing it. And the way particularly um, how everything is a hierarchy. I mean, everything is li- literally church is a hierarchy. And, and you, you kind of get like there's God. There was Driscoll, uh, there was um, the elders, there was the men, and then there were the wives. And, and this, this, this is a really big hierarchy. And everything is funneled. Any, anything good is still within that hierarchy, okay? And that's what made it so dangerous. I mean, if he was just coming out and saying, you know, something stupid, like, you know, you know don't be afraid to give your wife a bit of a slap if she talks back. I mean, if he said something as bad as that, it would be obvious. But the the problem was he was saying stuff that that did have something good about it, but it, then there was this privation that was introduced through the hierarchy and the specifics and the loyalty that it was demanded. Which is more insidious, isn't it? Mike, you used the metaphor, oh, and not necessarily, not really a metaphor, of uh, pornography to describe uh, Mark's uh, kind of a way of appealing to people. I just want to plug jessica johnson's study right now um if you don't know it's called biblical porn affect labor and pastor mark driscoll's evangelical empire and i think it's just worth reading the the description uh from the publisher which i think can maybe spark further for the conversation in this regard but um the short paragraph blurb is uh between 1996 and 2014 mark driscoll's mars hill church multiplied from its base in seattle into 15 facilities spread across spread across five states within 13,000 with 13,000 attendees when it closed the church was beset by a scandal with former attendees testifying to spiritual abuse emotional manipulation and financial exploitation in biblical porn Jessica Johnson examines how Mars Hill's congregants become entangled in processes of religious conviction Johnson shows how they were effectively recruited into sexualized and militarized dynamics of power through the mobilization of what she calls biblical porn, the affective labor of communicating, promoting, and embodying Driscoll's teaching on biblical masculinity, femininity, and sexuality, which simultaneously worked as a marketing strategy, social imaginary, and biopolitical instrument. Johnson theorizes religious conviction as a social process through which Mars Hill's congregants circulated and amplified feelings of hope, joy, shame, and paranoia as effective value that the church capitalized on to grow at all costs. I think just complete disclosure, my experience with Mars Hill is relatively limited. I listened to a lot of sermons by Driscoll in high school. 
and attended Marsdale Orange County for, I think, two months uh, in 2012 or something. I don't remember. Sometime around there. But I do think that this, what she says about Driscoll capitalizing on his teachings on sex as a marketing tool is completely correct. And I think, Mike, that's what you were tapping into. Um, so anyways, it's a good book if you want to go read it. But I think because we brought up the porn metaphor, I thought it was worth uh, plugging. Yeah, that was a good connection. I mean, I just wanted to know, particularly something my girlfriends and I have been talking about is how much of a connection we can make between, you know, these attitudes towards women and these attitudes towards power. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're so connected. It's interesting because, you know, we're, we're sitting here saying Mark Driscoll, Mark Driscoll, Mark Driscoll's teaching. But I think that, um, you know, in line with, with what you're pointing out here, even, um, what he, his teaching was not isolated from popular, the most popular evangelical books, um, Christian books on marriage. And, you know, Sheila Gregore has demonstrated this so well. Um, so, I mean, I think that's one thing that also made it so palpable is like, you know, you put the word biblical in front of it and, um, or Christian in front of it. And, and it does like, we want to be godly men and godly women. And yet, as, as Mike pointed out, um, this is a perversion of that. And it's so connected to power over women. Um, I mean, you know, you hear Mike use the word harem, uh, but it, it is like that, isn't it? Uh, you know, to hear um, to hear that woman on the last podcast say that um, when she went to go be a doula and takes this mas massage class and for the first time realizes something like agency and intimacy, <laughs> um, that was just devastating to hear. Um, it was just devastating to hear her say that. But um, how many more women? feel that total loss of dignity and personhood and their own marriages because of this teaching. But yeah, with the power, I mean, his teaching was very militant, right? He taught a militant Jesus and then a militant masculinity with that. And, and in order to you know, keep this power and this, you have to have this war going on all the time. And so there's always these enemies and, and women yeah, they become very suspicious then, right? Especially when your whole voice is taken from you. And as, as one woman described it, you know, if she were to voice um, that she wasn't feeling well when her husband wanted to be intimate with her, well, then she's disobeying the God of the universe. So it was not only, you know, human power, but it's this, this spiritual power and manipulation. I'll never forget the episode where Driscoll basically ordered a woman to have oral sex with her husband. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that for me was like, whoa. I mean, this yeah. is something the woman was clearly not comfortable with. And to confess to her husband that she was being disobedient. Right. Yeah, to and repent. then confess oh, that oh, I have mistreated no. you. It's like, now, now and, oh. and you can, now, if you want to know what's going to attract certain types of men, hearing that, like, wow, I can, I can order my wife to do stuff that she doesn't want to do in the name of God and tell her she's disobeying God if she doesn't, again, be my personal porn star. I mean, that's going to appeal to certain types of men who have already got some problems uh, in, their, in, in, in marriage and their attitudes to women. And, and, and that's just on that issue alone. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that um, the militaristic language and militaristic sort of posture really picks up is that uh, there is a power with constantly creating a threat. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we've lived in the 20th and 21st century since World War II. There's been a constant state of uh, ex exception because of the threats that have been construed in the world. You know, we had Korean War, uh, then we had Vietnam War, and in the middle of that was the, the Brown Scare. And, yeah, the, it creates this sort of state of emergency where anything goes uh, because there's a, a threat that needs to be combat, combative. But that also means that there is things that can be done which require little oversight. I mean, Mike uh, is ex-miller and we, we know uh, what uh, the SF crews in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan have been getting up to from Australia. But that's exactly how Driscoll postured and, and positioned himself in, in that in that frame. And so it makes me wonder now with you know Driscoll moving on to Trinity Church in, and the, the, <clears throat> the spread of all these churches uh, that have come out of Mars Hill, how is that state of exception uh, playing itself out? Uh, how, how is the, the trauma, if you like, of living in uh, combat territory for so long actually working itself through? Yeah, I was thinking that even in like the stories of deconstruction and, you know, that whole episode in the end was just dripping with trauma and um, and disillusionment that all the followers were having. But even those descriptions, I think, have this subtle message of aggression as virtue and mm -hmm. male power. So, for for example, one of them, and this was really gripping when this when this man was sharing, when he said that, um, you know, people that he knew who were beautiful people are now absolutely wretched. And he said, some of the best dads and friends I knew are now smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, drinking at work and talking about shooting themselves. And I thought to myself, two things, look, here's this aggression on the other ends now, right? And self-harm, but just about the male agency to be able to do those things. Like what about all the women who've been suffering under this aggressive teaching all this time silently? Um, and how it's totally wrecked their sense of self and how they really don't have the, the privilege even to behave in that way that some of these men are behaving in, in their deconstruction because they have children to take care of or because, you know, they might have no financial means to be able to spiral in that kind of way. You know, like I just it just really made me think, you know, it, it that aggress male aggression virtue is still playing out in other ways maybe to step back um a sec my my main takeaway is that once a bus like mars hill gets going it's very hard to stop mm. uh and of course the bus metaphor was kind of memorable um phrase that that driscoll uh, said for those who don't know it driscoll says at mars hill you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus and by you know we have a pile of dead bodies uh, behind the Mars Hill bus. And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain before we're done. Um, it's a pretty eerie and terrifying statement and actually horribly true, probably. Not the God's grace part, but the fact that it ran over. Yeah. Um, and um, there's two things, three things that come to mind here. Um, one is um, we really need to figure out 
you know, when, when churches are being set up, especially when churches are planted, people really need to put safeguarding measures in place so that a bus like that never gets going, right? And with, with and this is the problem with non-denominational churches, of course, that accountability structures are optional, right? So no one could force Mark to be accountable to anyone. And he would just say, I can't be accountable to anyone who has a smaller church than me, which is, of course, a ridiculous statement. Um, but accountability was completely up to him. If he didn't, whenever someone tried to hold him accountable, he would just fire them, say, screw you, stop listening to them, whatever. People need to put in safeguarding measures prior to a bus getting like, to a bus like that getting going. But then once the bus, second point is that once the bus, once the bus gets going, it's very, very difficult to stop. And um, it kind of drags people along with it unwillingly being complicit in it and turning them into you know inadvertent and unwilling or or maybe yeah inadvertent drivers of the bus who participate in running people over the the, the point of that second thing is that you know once a bus get like that gets going people need to pull out all stops to make it stop or else it'll just keep going and going and going and i think it was it was hard for people when they tried to stop it they you know just got run over it was just had so much momentum the third thing, and this is kind of wrapped into a criticism of the podcast, which I know Brandon has a problem with. So maybe we can like hash this out and duel uh, in a bit. Talk about militant masculinity. <laughs> um, but to mix, to, to jeopardize mixing metaphors, and then I'll stop talking. <laughs> if you're a journalist and you say, there's this bus that has a Mars Hill sign on it that keeps running over hundreds of people and it's killing people all over the country. Uh, and then you try to, you know, as a journalist, you kind of track where this bus is going and who it's who it's running over or whatever. And then finally, you finally get to the point where you know the last person, you you find the last person who's run over by the Mars Hill bus. And the reason why I was the last person run over by the Mars Hill bus is because at that point, the Mars Hill bus had so much attention and so many journalists following it that it changed its decal to the Trinity Church. And then it slowed down maybe by about three miles an hour, but it kept running people over. <laughs> and it continues to run people over now. But then imagine if the journalist who's following the Mars Hill bus goes, my work here is done. I got to the last person run over by the Mars Hill bus. And because my scope originally was to track the Mars Hill bus, I don't care what decal the bus has on it now, says the Trinity Church, not my problem. I'm just gonna focus on the Mars Hill bus. So our story is done. I feel like as a journalist, you kind of have a responsibility to follow the bus if it's still running people over, even if it's just under a different name. Uh, and uh, I just think about that as like a potential criticism of the podcast, that it just seemed kind of cowardly to be like, I'm only going to deal with past issues because they're past. And there was I couldn't help but think that they just really didn't want to get into any kind of contemporary issues or contemporary problems, and they didn't want to... They felt like it would be too controversial to actually like address that the bus is still running people over. Uh, but I do feel like they had a responsibility to do that. Interesting. I mean, what, what I would add is that Driscoll was at one level successful. He established this little empire with his own minions beholden to himself. And as long as the empire was growing and colonizing, he was getting attention there was no way people were going to stop him. And yeah, like you said, Logan, once the bus got going, uh, no one could stop it because the, the, the momentum was the success. And 
you know, the increasing giving, the increasing numbing, the more plants. No, no one was willing to say that this is not worth it, or, or not to my knowledge. No, no one said, you know, you know, this is success at what cost? And this is the, the little amphorism I've coined to deal with this is that when success is an idol, bullying becomes a sacrament. And I think that that plays out at Mars Hill. As long as, as long as you've got empirical evidence to say things are going really, really well, the ends justifies the means. And you can indulge in just about anything. And that's also not unique to Mars Hill. That plays out in a lot of places. Mike, I think that that's a really interesting like comment about when do you know that something's gone twisted with your plausibility structures? That's something that I know I've had some connection with um, as that I am. And, you know, you, you kind of have this, the, the metric of when things are healthy gets go, goes strange. And something I want to ask both you and Amy is, so we know in hindsight that those plausibility structures were wrong. So the metric of health being just pure growth um, but what are the other, what are the, when do we, what are some of the markers? What are some of the features of when you know that your plausibility structures have gone wrong? So that you can, so for, in terms of future learnings, like as an organisation, a church or parachurch, whatever, how do you know that you, you that something's gone wrong? It's when nobody can sack the senior minister. If there is basically no mechanism or an impossible way of dismissing the, the key person or even the board as a whole, if there's no way to remove them or, 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 or expose what they're doing, that for me would be the number one red, red flag. Yeah, I mean, having gone through something, uh, you know, not at this level here, but um, I've definitely experienced this very thing where the, the plausibility structure is just out the window. And you know, one thing that is real became real apparent was process over people. And so, you know, technicalities are used and, you know, all these steps and process is kind of clobbering the vulnerable. Um, so, you know, a big question to ask is who's, whose voices are we hearing all the time? Um, do, are we hearing from those you know, in the margins and um, do people feel safe to come forward? Um, because, there, you know, there's abuse in every church, you know, happening in, in households and things like that. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that there's an approachability issue for one, but then, there, you know, I know in, in the Presbyterian church, I thought, boy, this is great. There's a whole system in place, you know, and, and you can go to the presbytery if things aren't working out for you in the, at the church level. And then you could go to appeal to the general assembly. But then when you're met at every level with basically no voice or no agency, um, and you find that the process is so complicated, it's like, you know, harder than the IRS you know, to file a proper complaint or to, you know, to do things right. Um, so I think that there's a lot, um, you know, as we're talking about Mars Hill and, and, and Mark Driscoll, in which there's this huge, you know, obviously extreme story um, that's affected so many people, you know, just the other people that I've heard from because of my own experience and those who are just like using their voices on social media now too, because they finally, you know, can be heard. It's just happening everywhere. So, you know, there is this big part of, you know, in talking about this, you know, we're talking about other people's stories for one thing. Um, I know Logan was pointing that out that, 
you know, there's a, a, a humility that we should have in the fact that, you know, we're looking from, from the outside. But on the other hand, too, um, there are so many people going through the same, the same trauma of spiritual abuse from leaders in their churches. So, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And there's a lot of layers to that. But, you know, what is even in place? I think there should be advocacy and training, you know, that you get ahead of all of this. Yeah. As, you know, as someone who actually attended Mars Hill for three years um, from about 2012, or I guess two years, I don't know, it's hard to understand. Uh, 2012 to the end uh, in 2014, I was uh, part of uh, Mars Hill, Orange County. Um, which then later became Mars Hill Huntington Beach uh, as we moved buildings. Um, and yeah, I think the plausibility structure is really interesting because I came out of a, 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 ch- a church experience that had even less uh, checks and balances for senior pastors. And so I, and I, and at, at my church, I grew up in, I, you know, I experienced, you know, uh, a lot of trauma and a lot of spiritual abuse. And so coming to Mars Hill was like, a really great thing for me in 2012. Uh, and when all the things were kicking off uh, in 2013, 2014, and I was kind of in, in leadership at Marshall Orange County in various ways, uh, leading community groups, coach of a region, um, volunteering way too much. Um, I had lots of people asking lots of questions and they were good questions and it didn't, necessarily affect me as much as other people did um, because I'd, I'd experienced worse trauma elsewhere. And so I thought, oh, this is, this is actually not as bad as, I, as things I've already experienced. Uh, and I thought, you know, maybe the redemption value of that was I was able to care for people who were experiencing lots of trauma uh, in, a, in ways uh, differently than other people were. Um, one of the takeaways I had of the, of the podcast was to see how widespread the trauma that I faced and friends faced in Orange County, how widespread that was throughout Mars Hill. Uh, Orange County was as kind of its own, um, you know, obviously it was still connected to still Mars Hill, but it was, it was, it was very different than the, the other Seattle campuses uh, or Portland. And so it was, I, I really appreciate the, the podcast um, just to really showcase uh, uh, the different experiences of Mars Hill and the, and the different experiences of trauma and, and some that were just horrendous, uh, like we've, we've talked about and some that, you know, don't really map onto my own experience, but I can see their experience and go, wow, I like, that makes sense. That, that, that scans for me. As for, uh, Logan's point, uh, we had a long conversation yesterday, uh, night about it. Uh, but no, I, I think, I, I do think you're right after reflecting on it more. So I, I really do hope, uh, I hope that, uh, Christianity today, uh, puts, uh, their money where their mouth is and just is able to do a bonus episode where they really talk about the legacy of Mars Hill at Trinity church and show how, how messed up it is and how, uh, Mark Driscoll is continually, uh, disqualifying himself uh, every day uh, in his pastorship, uh, in scare quotes there, um, and I really do hope that that we 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 can see that and that the people at that church leave and get help and go to a real church because um, uh, I think it's I think it's a, a atrocious and I think it's a a shame that people um, 
that 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 he's still a pastor uh, after all he's done. Um, so there's my uh, you know gloves off comment there. Anyway, I think what you said about that there, there are there are people listening to this podcast who have experienced so many similar things, and they hear you know in this podcast kind of like images resonances of their own experience being witnessed to them, right? And this I think yeah. Um, Trauma theorists will talk about the kind of role of the witness as like yes. important um, uh, kind of initial initial uh, kind of creates initial states of conditions for for healing to to validate the experience and realize that you've gone through something, have somebody else recognize it. Um, but it ties into what I think kind of the the criticism that goes around that this is church failure porn. Church failure porn. Yeah, I think I just think that's like. I just when you said that I realized how actually unfair that is because really what it is it's it's the reason why I think it's probably so popular isn't because people are reveling in the fact that they just want to see Mark Driscoll get dragged mm-hmm. but it's more, it's more because they really hear a direct or indirect witness yes. to their experience of trauma and like that's why people that's that's why I suspect it can be so popular because in other people have not had a direct witness to their own experience of abuse. And this is kind of functioning as a way, of, uh, as a kind of like public, like indirect witness, and which I think can actually, and people talk about it on the on the podcast, right? How like this podcast has initiated like right. kind of processes of healing and processes of reconciliation mm-hmm. with so many people in ways that they never would have suspected, even while also inducing like panic attacks. Which I is know, like right? That state of witness, but yeah. It just made it me just think of really that. It really goes to show that. how the body keeps the score. Yeah. But, you know, it kind of uh, also connecting that with what Brandon was saying, you know, in your experience there, Brandon, um, you know, I think that is is one of the more complicated things. So you're coming from something where you, um, you saw less accountability structures and you're moving into something feeling like you're in, you're having more. But at the same time, it, you know, when you say um I'm gonna give a little push, and and I think this is what I, I'm hoping that we we are learning as we're listening to these stories, is that um, well I didn't experience that there, you know that is part of the witness that is so traumatized, you know is traumatizing for those who are experiencing it. And um, a Spurgeon quote that I've used a couple times that I just think really hits home there is that um, leniency to the dishonest is cruelty to those whom they injure. And I think that's such a huge part of, you know, what you were even talking about, Stephanie. It's, it's just that um, we we want to be polite. They talked about this conspira- conspiracy of politeness. Um, and I really was like connecting with what they were saying there because, you know, you hear these platitudes. You don't want to, you know, you want to give people the benefit of the doubt. There's You want to be friends with everyone kind of thing, you know. And, um, you know, the person coming forward with their, in their pain. Um, who need help, they they do need witness to that and they and they need actual help and they need it to be named um what happened to them because they're just trying to make sense of it still, you know, be, because of all the good things that are going on there. Um, because of all of, you know, this person's doing this, this, and this. How how could you possibly say that about them? So I mean, I think that that is something that is um, you know, can really further rub salt into into the wound sometimes. And but it's hard because I think all of us have done that, right? Um, you know, my kids are benefiting here. <laughs> um, so it's gonna hurt my family to to then take a stand 
So, I mean, I think, you know, it gets really complicated of where the line is, but, you know, if you were to, uh, to be an advocate for somebody and speak out and say like, you know, this is, this isn't right. And it, it could be as easy. I mean, repentance goes so far, like true, real repentance, you know, which is interesting because I think Mark Driscoll, he's kind of shaming people all the time and calling for their repentance, but it's, it's kind of this faux, it's kind of a show, you know, like a faux goodness of a leader um, because he's really leading by shame. Yeah. And I, I, and I think on that is that's really interesting is that uh, in the, in the final episode, they had this uh, quote, uh, somebody was speaking about how all the, or a, a lot of the Mars Hill, former Mars Hill pastors met up afterwards and half of them said, I'm so sorry that I judged you for leaving. And mm-hmm. the other half said, I'm so sorry I judged you for staying. And that, for me, that really resonated because as everything's kicking off and people are leaving, I have friends who are judging me for staying mm-hmm. and they don't really know my story. Uh, and then I'm also judging people, you know, I'm not perfect in this at, at, at all. And I'm judging people for leaving and I'm getting angry and frustrated um, because, you know, I, maybe I, I personally can disconnect, you know, the work of, that Mars Hill is doing, whether that's good or bad. Uh, from Driscoll, because I don't really care all that. I didn't really care all that much about Driscoll, but other people didn't, w- weren't able to to separate those two. Uh, and that, and that's totally okay uh, for them to do. Um, but I just, I just thought that, that those, those kind of learning about other people's perspectives and then that kind of the, the bit in the aftermath uh, episode where people are, have been going on this journey for the past you know, five years or so. I don't know how long it's been, six years, seven there, years. There was some very different repentance going on. Like you had uh, the guy Sutton, who in, in many accounts was the arch villain, um, you know, Driscoll's hatchet man, you know, the guy who really, who, whose job was to bury the bodies. He seemed, um, as far as I could tell, genuinely penitent uh, about what he'd done and had reached out to people. And then you compare that with Driscoll himself. And what's Driscoll's response? God has told me a trap has been set and I'm to get out. I mean, that is a different response. You know, one guy says, you know, um, you know, I, I stared into the, the abyss and then one day I saw my own reflection in it. Basically, I realized I, I was, I was, I was, I, I basically Sutton had to realize he was, Driscoll's own little personal, you know, Joseph Goebbels. He was Goebbels to Driscoll's Hitler. And when you realize that, that is a horrible feeling. But Driscoll is still thinking, I'm the good guy. These people, Satan set a trap for me and God has delivered me from it. Okay. And now he's taken me to the safe place in Arizona. Okay. So, and I mean, that, that's, that's why you see the contrast. And that's why you can say, Driscoll is still a very sick, dangerous man because he's he's pushing this narrative that this is something Mars Hill is what he's been rescued from, um, rather than something he should be um, uh, held accountable for, or or um, you know hounded about or anything like. This was this was a trap that was set for him. That is that is got to be the height of hubris. I, I think though it really highlights. Um the variegated nature of narcissism and abuse uh, that, uh, and the, I think the podcast did this very well in that it really 
you got uh, this spectrum of what the church looks like in in various unhealthy states. Um, and even though there are positive things, uh, well, even though it is unhealthy, there are still positive things coming out of it. Uh, but you you saw, you know, Driscoll as the classical sort of stageman, narcissist uh, bully. But then there were other people who are equally as unhealthy in these relationships. Um, so people were talking about the fact that they really resonated with this because that they needed and they really wanted a, a father figure. Uh, and so they would dived into that. Um, and I found it really interesting. Uh, Chuck DeGroote popped up a, a couple of times uh, speaking into um speaking on the podcast about narcissism and his book, uh, When Narcissism Comes to Church, um, came out in 2019, I think. So before the podcast even started, but you basically could, um, you could write, write the entire podcast. Sorry, it came out in 2020 before the podcast started, but you could basically write the entire podcast based on this book, uh, which it, it highlights a whole bunch of the different aspects there. And you could read, it'd be an interesting uh, pastoral re- research project for someone to, to read uh, the story of Mars Hill through the, this lens of narcissism. Uh, and it's probably a book that I think we, we should get all uh, people who are um, moving into ministry and uh, who are training for ministry to read um, because it, it does highlight that, that nature of uh, everyone can fall into these traps. And Chris, I think that, that that raises a really interesting question, which I'd like to hear um, what people's thoughts on this are in terms of um, formation of people before they go into pastoral ministries. And one of the issues, obviously, is that when you don't have a, you're not part of an institutional denominational structure that lends itself to particular problems. But um, I think... Um, you know, going forward, one of the one of the questions is, how do you intercept this stuff in terms of you know your training and theological training and and the kind of psychometric evaluations that go on? If you're trying to intercept character issues, and so because one of the big obviously framing issues that has been raised by the podcast is this um, imbalance between competence and character, and um, I think that. Um, you know, I know that in the diocese, in the Anglican diocese that I'm in, there's this big call for all young men, come, come and become pastors. It's like, do you really want everyone in an indiscriminate way? Um, so I think that that's, that's one of the questions. But I think that one of the big learnings that I've had, so I'm a lawyer. I work with a lot of um, not-for-profits, churches, organisations, um, in the Christian and non-Christian um, spheres. Um, obviously, and this is something that ties into what you were saying, Amy, that there's no one governance structure that insulates you from these kinds of failures. Right. That's clear. It just takes on a different texture. Um, and so in, in, your, in your experience, due process was, was weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the lack of clarity around the processes in in the case of Mars Hill, was its own um, is was was weaponized. So, are there some structures that lend itself more to um, that kind of formalized accountability? Not just like Driscoll, you know, picking and choosing who he wanted to be accountable to. Um, so, I think that that's that's the question that I that that I've been thinking about. Like, are some 
church structures better than others, so on the spectrum of centralised to congregational, like are some better than others to, <laughs> to keep this kind of stuff from happening? And I'd, I'd be keen to hear um, what others think on that on that question. Well, yeah, I mean, I think definitely uh, there are probably much better structures than others. I think what is so crazy about the Mars Hill uh, story and Mark Driscoll is that, you know, it's mentioned in the podcast, but he says, you know, he jokingly, uh, Mark Driscoll jokingly explains like, oh, you know, I had never been a part of a church. I had just become a Christian. I thought it would be a good idea to start a church. And I think that was mind blowing to me of just being like, I've heard, you know, coming out of uh, Calvary Chapel, that's my background. You know, a lot of people, you know, John as well, you know, those churches, you know, started in the Jesus movement, as much hippies on the beach, people got saved, (laughs) no, no theological education, started churches, which in one sense is like an amazing, amazing work of the spirit. And in another sense, become ended up becoming really anti-intellectual, no formal theological education. And then, you know, as these pastors have now reached, you know, who are much older now is just perpetuating this anti-intellectual culture. Uh, and I, and we say, and, and they don't have it really any, any accountability uh, and within Calvary Chapel, you know, after Chuck Smith died, you know, there's even less now uh, you don't have a, you know, a, a patriarch to say, uh, you know, to use the term. Uh, but with Mark Driscoll, it's like, you can have all the, the authority, you know, the accountability structures, you, you could be centralized, you know, you could be in the, you know, you could be Catholic for all you care, but it doesn't really stop anyone from going out, starting a Bible study, being very charismatic and manipulative and a, just a bad dude and getting a, a following. And, you know, I think in the last episode, they some, you know, it wasn't Mike Cosper, but it really, somebody did mention like, this is a cult, you know, this was a cult. And I think, Hearing uh, from my own experience, hearing somebody say that after listening to all the podcast episodes, I thought, oh, damn, was I in a cult? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> was that true? And I feel like, you know what, in many, many ways, like, yeah, yeah, probably was. And it probably was, it, it was unhealthy, but hearing someone just, you know, I think speak the, the uncomfortable truth in the room of being like i think this is a cult i think i think it rings true so i mean and i and i unfortunately it's like there are better accountability structures but if people choose not to follow them and other people choose to follow those people you know changing seminary uh you know uh evaluations instructions you know uh admissions things like isn't going to solve that problem in the short term Maybe it will in the long run because we'll yeah. be educating people. I think we need to get ahead of it on a whole ecclesial level. Like um, we can look within each denomination and say like, okay, here's some pluses and minuses going on that you might have over others. But, you know, what I really found in my own case and talking to church officers in my own denomination um, you know, well, first of all, finding out what was being taught in seminary about men and women, like the theology was really scary, um, you know, and it was all to do with these power structures that work again and, and this kind of extreme natural theology. Um, and then so 
the anthropology was already ingrained in them, you know, even even connected to their doctrine of, of God, you know, in the Trinity. Um, but then to, to find out that the people who are supposed to shepherd me and, and, and hold one another accountable on a Presbyterian level, which you think would be a really good system in, in place, um, they had zero training on um, abuse, how to, how to spot abuse, how to navigate abuse, how to be trauma-informed in your care. Um, and, you know, even things like, um, you know, it's hard enough, the justice part is one element, but even in, in like, where's the care for these hurting people? Um, you know, all the attention goes on the abusive people and, and, and whether or not they're abusive and, um, you know, whether or not you can do anything about it. And, um, you know, there's all this power dynamics and things like that at work in the structures themselves. But, uh, it's just crazy to think how Christ is left out of the whole thing and that there's no care for the actual hurting people. So, I mean, I think that's a huge element of that question too, but you know, you have to get ahead, way ahead. And, and part of that also, you know, just to throw it in there is that there's very few women in, in these seminaries as well. And, and they're definitely not being taught by barely any. And so, um, you know, there's, there's just this very narrow vision I mean, I, I would have thought that the non-denominational churches would be more susceptible to this because of structure. But I think Amy's case shows you can have a system of government that is positively bureaucratic, you know, that's got so many things. But at the end of the day, I'm starting to think it's less about the structures of the leadership, and it comes down to two things. One is the character of the leaders and the culture that you create in the church? is the, uh, do, do people have the character of, I'm here to get results, and it doesn't matter how? If, if, does someone have that attitude? And then what is the culture? Is this a culture that's ever going to be a safe space for a narcissist? Is this is a culture where women are not valued, okay? Women can have their Bible studies. So the character of the people you've got and the kind of type of cultures you're creating whether that's something, you know, Episcopal or it's as low church non-denominational as you can get, I'm starting to think that it's character and culture are the two biggest things that will determine whether the church is abusive or not. Yeah, on, on that uh, note, Mike, um, it's, I, think, I think part of it is there's a motivation issue behind that. You know, so why are people presenting for uh, ministry? Uh, is it because... Um, is it because it is this sense of deep desire and calling to 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 bring people uh, to Christ and minister to people, or is it that people are drawn to the power structures that exist? So, I mean, from my point of view as an Anglican, the the entire reason I'm an Anglican is because uh, I experienced uh, the dysfunction in a congregationalist or Baptist environment. Um, and and I saw that in in a tension that, uh, between having to work with a hierarchy and a local church uh, that 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 provides some insulation there. Uh, but it, it's it, I think it is worth saying that if the people who are most susceptible to this sort of power grab aren't even coming to the seminaries in the first place, uh, then we're already behind the eight ball uh, when we're trying to 
to engage and, and to, to shape culture? So the, there's been a lot of criticism of the rise and fall of myself that it um, kind of platforms the wrong people. And I, and I do resonate with this uh, kind of discomfort quite a bit. Uh, the way that they platformed Sutton Turner's resignation story was was really strange uh, and really felt really uncomfortable and really one-sided when he like complained about people or were going to out him for doing certain things. And he was like, this was so wrong. It's like, yeah, maybe you also did a lot of <laughs> effed up stuff. <laughs> like, uh, And we were like supposed to feel like sympathy for him with, in this moment. It was really weird. Um, but I think one of the, one of the kind of things that sets the tone for that is from the first episode, and I'm not sure this is in the intro to every episode, but it's in a lot of them where he says, oh, it's a story about how this church, you know, kind of fell apart overnight. Uh, and but it's also a story about God, you know, like working in unexpected places or something like that. Right. And, and then, of course, there's a line of like, who kills Mark, who killed Mars Hill? It was all of us. Right. And I just kind of think, like, doesn't that already from the outset doesn't it already from the outset kind of like really silence the voices of people who were seriously harmed by this process i mean i just think of if you were like let's just look for the fingerprints of god in the apartheid like where was god working in the apartheid like <laughs> like this is just kind of a weird question so anyways i wanted to direct this kind of like thought you know to amy like I don't know if you felt like like what did you think about that kind of framing of the of the podcast uh, about like oh this is a story about God working in in I forget what the phrasing is but God working in unexpected mm -hmm. places um, which of course I wouldn't like theologically deny but like I just think maybe you have some probably more coherent thoughts of like why that maybe can be kind of odd I don't know right the framing of it anyway because like yeah. of course there's there's truth in that. God's going to work in, in the brokenness, right? And those who were hurt the worst, you know, I hope wouldn't feel abandonment from God in it and, and beauty and fruit to arise. However, there's such ugliness in all of it. Um, and, and I do think they, they did a pretty good job in that last, last episode um, naming that better. And at the end, I think Mike Cosper kind of maybe even gave him himself a little bit of a... a a different narrative there than it, than it started from. Cause I think there has been criticism that's been vocal about that. And at the end, he kind of spoke to those who, you know, wanted more attention, which is interesting, but he, I guess he's getting criticism from all sides, you know? And so that those who were saying, you know, but what about all these good stories that have come out of this? Um, why aren't you focusing more on those? Which is kind of what that byline was doing in some ways, right? But he said, when you've got these hurting people here, you're you're kind of I'm using different words than he did now because I can't remember how he said it, but you're you're pretty much kicking them all over again to say, yeah, but we need to be looking at this good stuff um, and, and not at these hurting people. Um, and so I, I was glad that he said that at the end, because I think that helped redeem that framing a little bit. But because I, I did think that that um, downplayed the pain that uh has been caused and and the sin and it was great to hear that restoration at the end for the people who who were able to have it but there's so many who haven't been able to have it still as well so you know you have to hold all those things together 
Well, Mike and Amy, this has been a, a really great conversation. Last time we had both of you on was in early May when we talked about leadership and abuse in the church. And that was before this podcast about the rise and fall of Marseille ever came out. Uh, so it feels very fitting to have this conversation with the two of you to sort of cap this uh, this whole experience that we had of listening through this uh, podcast. So just thank you both for your time and for for joining us. I really enjoy talking with you guys and I love listening to the podcast. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, I also enjoy hanging out with you good peeps. Uh, keep up the Aussie numbers. Uh, one day we will <laughs> completely dominate and colonize America and install you Jackman as the rightful president. That of course is the perfect way to end a podcast about Mark Driscoll.